0: You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit CanbyFoursquare.com to learn more. Um, so happy you're here. I'm James. I get the privilege of serving on staff. Pastor Ron and Annette are away this weekend, but they send their love. And hey, I've got to be honest with you right up front on the jump from this message, is that I'm borrowing heavily from someone else. And the words that I'm about to say to you. Now, to be fair, every message that I preach, and I think most pastors preach, is the result of a lot of dedicated study, time in the Word, time in the books. But also, it's a synthesis of a lot of the other thoughts that we read about or other messages that we listen to. And I think that's actually pretty healthy because if your pastor is preaching something that's completely new, chances are it's heresy and it's no bueno. So, it's good It's good to be able to kind of rehash and repeat the same doctrines and traditions in fresh ways again and again. And so today, especially, um, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, and the giant in particular is a gentleman named Pastor Jim Fortner. Now, let me show you a photo of my parents' wedding— in 1979, so there's my happy folks there in the middle. And then that gentleman on the right with a mustache that I think embodies everything that was extravagant about the late 70s. I mean, look at the lapels on that jacket. Like they're about to, anyway, they can jump off and give you a hug themselves. That, that gentleman on the right, that's Jim Fortner. He was the officiant at my parents' wedding in 1979 in Alaska. Jim and Terry Fortner actually served here at Canby Foursquare for many years. Anybody remember Jim and Terry? Right. Deeply loved by everybody who they came in contact with. And Jim has known me since before I was born. And I think this fact came in handy about 12 years ago when I first moved to town. I was living in Alaska at the time, and a buddy of mine came and said to me, hey, you want to go take some classes at Canby Bible College? And I'm like, where's Canby? Canby. He says, it's outside of Portland. I'm like, okay, sounds like a plan. So based on that conversation, I buy a ticket from Anchorage down to Portland. The problem was I was 21 years old and I sucked at life. So I didn't really have a plan after that. I didn't know anyone in Portland. I didn't have a place to stay. I wasn't even sure how I was going to leave the airport once I arrived. (laughs) And another friend of mine who knew about this weakness in my life, he makes this phone call. He says, hey, Pastor Jim, do you remember Jamie Walton, Don and Sue's boy? Oh, yeah, sure. He's flying into Portland tonight to PDX at midnight. Can you pick him up? Jim says, sure. And when I get off the plane, there's Jim Fortner, and he drives me back to his house in Hubbard, and I sleep on his couch for six weeks, and that's how my life in Canby began. And I'm forever grateful to Jim and Terry for their hospitality. So, the material that you're about to hear today comes from Pastor Jim. It's stuff that he had developed through his years of pastoral ministry. And if there's anything beneficial about what we are about to hear today, it's entirely due to Jim. And if there's anything amiss, that's obviously entirely on me. So, let's pray. We're going to get into our text this morning, which is in Romans chapter 12. You can open your Bibles there as we pray. Jesus, you've called us to be peacemakers, who reject revenge as a way of life. And you are the perfect example of forgiveness, and we ask that through the Holy Spirit you would give us the courage to change, the humility to listen to your words this morning. We ask for your grace and your presence alongside us this morning as we learn. We want to become more like you. In your name we pray, amen. All right. Uh, This passage, Romans chapter 12, there's a paragraph in Romans chapter 12 that is so fantastic. It bears reading the whole thing, even though we're only going to focus in on one verse towards the end. So let's pick it up. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. I will repay, says the Lord. Okay, so this entire passage is wild. And to understand it fully, you'd need to dedicate like several months of study to this in, a, in an academic environment alongside other people. It's almost like we should offer a class on the Book of Romans. Hey, we do. It's at CBC. starts Thursday. I'm the professor. You can still join. I'll talk to the dean. Put in a good word for you. What Paul is doing here in this paragraph is te- t- telling you about how to deal with your opponents and those who upset and offend you. Paul opens, look again, with the command to bless those who persecute you, refusing to wish ill against them. Instead, we are to stay emotionally open and present with all, mourning with those who mourn, celebrating with those who rejoice. We are to reject pride and instead seek out friendships across socioeconomic boundaries. And if anyone treats us poorly, we do not return in kind. And then here's the key text for us this morning, verse 18. As much as it depends on, upon us, live at peace with all men. Okay, so two quick notes of observation on this text from the jump. Number one, it's our responsibility as Christ's followers... To live at peace with all. The onus of responsibility lies with who? Us. Why? Because if we want to follow Jesus, that's what's part of the game. The second thing is, it ain't going to happen. Watch the way that Paul qualifies what he says. He says, as much as it depends on you, and if possible, live at peace with all men. What is Paul doing? He's a realist. And he understands what? Who do you control? You, right? Do you control your neighbor? No. So what Paul is saying is keep your side of the street clean. You cannot control the other person. So as much as it depends upon you, live at peace with all men. So that's what we're going to focus on this morning. We are called to humbly follow a process, not to use force, to secure an outcome. All right, so far so good, right? This hopefully shouldn't come as much of a big surprise to you that the commands to love our enemies, to bless instead of curse, to never avenge ourselves, to not repay evil for evil. These are so central to the teachings and the actions of Christ that Jesus said that remember what Jesus said in the book of John? He says, "The world will know that you are my disciples because you belong to the right political party. No, whoa, okay, really? Are you okay? The world will know that you are my disciples because you abide by the right doctrinal statement. No, No. dang it. What is it? Oh, the world will know that you're my disciples, what is it? Because of your love for one another. That's the metric that we're being evaluated on. How well do you get along with other people? And in that way, that's how the world knows that we're followers of Jesus. So, for the sake of our witness in the world, for the sake of our relationships, especially with our spouses and our coworkers and others, it's worth asking the question, all right, exactly how does one try to live at peace with all? And what do you do when that relationship already has an offense in the middle of it? That's what today's all about. Now, as soon as a pastor starts talking about relationships and conflict resolution, a couple of things begin to immediately happen. It calls his or her own family relationships into question, doesn't it? All right? Now, um, let's agree right now from the jump, I do not have a perfect marriage. This may come as a shock to you, but it's true. I don't have a perfect marriage. A couple of weeks ago, I zip-tied a knife, a fork, and a spoon— to the to the dish to the silverware tray in my dishwasher. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking this is amazing because it is. It really is. In my house, there's a visually reinforced system by which anyone, including my five-year-old twins, can appropriately load every utensil, business end down, in their correct trays so that when the dishes are done, in three quick strokes of the hand, you put all of the utensils back almost instantaneously. It is so magical. You go home and try this. Put this system into practice in your own home. You will come back and thank me. everything was going great until my wife entered the picture. My wife is a wonderful woman, but she's the strong independent type who enjoys doing things her own way. So when my wife does the dishes, what do you think happens? Does she abide by my carefully constructed system? No. When my wife does the dishes, it's chaos. It's absolute madness. Knives and forks and spoons and tongs and spatulas all interlocking like a, like a utensil mosh pit, right? It's completely unmanageable. It's a hot mess. And I can tell that all of you realize that I am right and she is wrong. But do I tell my wife that? No, I do not, because I'm not an idiot, And I have learned in 10 years of marriage a little bit about how to choose the battles that you really want to fight. And the utensil tray, as beautiful, as beautiful as that system is, is not a hill I'm willing to die on. So, with that nugget, I want to give you four more principles to help you in this area of conflict resolution. Principle number one, your job is to win the person not the battle. Win the person, not the battle. We all know how to win a battle. In war, as in marriage, you simply escalate the level of force until the other person submits. And the level of force or the kind of force involved will vary from person to person. Sometimes it's verbal, sometimes it's emotional, sometimes it's physical. But either way, If this escalation of force is the most common way that you deal with your stuff, over time you'll begin to erode and destroy trust. And when trust is destroyed in a relationship, there can be no vulnerability, and if there's no vulnerability, then there's no real relationship. Jim Fortner's insight is so clear here, I'm just going to quote his words. He says, the most powerful non-physical human need is to be valued. Therefore, the most painful wound and the one that will bring the most severe reaction is to be devalued. I devalue you when I condescend to you, when I yell insult and use sarcasm, when I talk down to you, when I dismiss your complaints as one would brush a mosquito away, when I honor others above you, when I refuse to listen to you any longer than it takes to formulate my own response, usually between two and ten seconds at which time I will interrupt you loudly if necessary because what I have to say is far more important than anything you are trying to say. I devalue you when I pull away from you emotionally and refuse to tell you what I am thinking. You are not important enough for me to talk to. You are not worthy of the time it would take for me to explain this to you. Usually I pull away because of something you said or did or maybe did not do, and it has offended me. But sometimes I pull away because I'm hiding something from you. Either way, the effect on you is the same. The message you hear is that a relationship with you is not something I value. If you get to the point where your conflict is simply the escalation of force until someone else surrenders, both of you are losing. There's a different way. There's a better way to conduct ourselves. Principle number two. Principle number two is to decide ahead of time to never devalue the other person during the conflict. Decide ahead of time to never devalue the other person during the conflict. The deciding ahead of time is actually really essential to this whole piece. I work with a lot of couples both before and after marriage, and we always talk about how to resolve some conflict. And I always say as we're sitting there in my office and everything is going well, We're inside the safe space where people can talk to each other fairly freely. And we talk about the idea of conflict in the abstract. Because here in the moment, emotions are running cool and everything looks fine and we can think. But you know, as I do, that in the heat of the moment, when emotions are running high, when physical margins are slim, when emotional margins are non-existent, that the least trigger can suddenly set you off and you find yourself behaving in ways that you never would have in a more calmer situation. Friends, all of those moments happen to all of us. You're not the only one that experiences that. The key thing to do is, like anything else, if you know the challenge is coming, train ahead of time for the challenge. If my challenge is, how do I hold my tongue or not say something hurtful in the midst of a heated conversation, then you need to practice by deciding ahead of time the words that you will and will not use when the situation comes. Anybody who's any good at anything practices ahead of time to perform well when the lights are on and the stress is high. In all of our marriages, we have times where the lights are on and the stress is high, and we need to have practiced ahead of time how we will conduct ourselves in those moments because almost inevitably, if we don't, we'll end up hurting the other person in the process. So the alternative to simply escalation of force till the other person surrenders is to commit to not using words and behaviors that hurt the other person and devalue them. I mean, think about it. How many of you have gotten into a fight with your spouse or someone else? They did something that hurt you. Now you're gonna argue about it, but in the course of the arguing, you get hurt even worse than whatever the primary incident was. And then after a while, you just realize that you hate each other, but you're not even sure why you started fighting in the first place. It's because the way that we actually fight is doing more damage than whatever action got us in the fight to begin with. So, this is the tragic downward spiral that's so common. I hurt you. You think about it and then choose to retaliate. Now, beforehand, I was just feeling guilty, but now I feel emboldened because you retaliated and hurt me to do what? Hurt you back. And so down and down we go. I hurt, you retaliate. I hurt, you retaliate. You suggest that perhaps my parentage isn't legitimate. I suggest that maybe your mother was a dog. And then all of a sudden, we both agree that it's best that I sleep on the couch tonight. (laughs) Have we gotten anywhere constructive? Are we winning? No, we are not. The usual weapons we use to fight our spouse includes retaliation, anger, volume, Profanity, exaggeration, withdrawal, silence, pouting, verbal abuse, and emotional abuse. We insult, deride, and dishonor each other. We slam doors, punch holes in walls, and throw things. We withhold affection, conversation, and respect. At the lowest levels of such fighting, we start throwing objects or throwing punches. Now, the first question is, how often does the use of such methods result in a peaceful resolution? I've tried some of these in my own marriage. It never worked. In fact, what we find it is that it's these methods themselves that do the damage. How's it working out for you? Is the way that you're fighting, is the way that you're trying to resolve your stuff doing more damage? If it is, you might want to think about a different approach. I want you to think of your conscience like a scale, all right? On one side is guilt. On the other side is bitterness and blame, okay? Now, the scale will always want to be in balance. So a few examples. If I screw up and offend you, then I load up my guilt side of the scale. I feel bad for what I've done. Now, I want you to be clear. This whole scale metaphor is entirely Jim's, but the poop emoji is all me, all right? (laughs) So, if I load up the guilt side of the scale, okay, now what? I wanna be in balance. So, what I'll choose to do if I don't admit what I've done or ask forgiveness, I'll begin to blame other people. Have you ever been here? You're feeling bad about something, but it's never your fault. It's the dog's fault, it's the weather's fault, it's the arresting officer's fault. It's not your fault. In fact, a person who's in this situation will choose to minimize the behavior. Well, you're the one who's wrong because you got offended about what I did. It's not that big of a deal. I don't see why you're blowing this out of proportion. In fact, and we go on and on and on, blaming other people for what we did. Why? Because we want our scales to be in balance, okay? The balancing effect works the other way as well. If you hurt me, Now you've added junk to the blame and bitterness side of the scale. I've been hurt, so now I'm bitter towards you. What does that give me the liberty to do? Now I can add junk to the blame side of the scale, but I don't have to feel guilty because since you've already hurt me, now I'm just getting even. After a while, if we continue down this process, our conscience ends up looking like this. And this is tragic and ridiculous, and there's a better way. Here's the third principle. You need to figure out how to remove your guilt through forgiveness. So, are we agreed that we need to win the person, not the battle? Yes. Yes. Okay? And that winning the person involves a commitment to never devaluing them through your words and actions. If that's true, then what steps are actually necessary To restore that relationship, the first step to removing guilt is to see your behavior through the eyes of your victim. You can't understand and empathize with the harm you've caused. That means that your apology will be essentially worthless. You don't know what it is that you're actually apologizing for until you understand your offense through the victim's eyes. This is part of Jesus' point in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, well, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, Jesus' insight here is so incisive and helpful. The very thing that we think is a speck in our own eye, to our victim's perspective, what does it look like? It's a log. We tend to minimize our own faults because of pride. But people who we have hurt see very clearly the enormity of the problem that because it lies in our eye, by definition, we cannot see it ourselves. So what must we do? Through empathy and understanding, we come to realize how we've harmed the other person. What is Jesus' command? He says, take the what out of your own eye. Log. Log which means that I need to recognize what I think is a speck is actually a log from the perspective of my victim. Therefore, I need to adopt my victim's perspective. It comes from a very humbling question. Would you please help me understand how I've hurt you? If you can ask that question and then keep your mouth shut, While they tell you the answer, you'll be making progress. Do not defend. Do not deflect. Do not justify. Simply listen. Remember, you're trying to empathize with your victim's perspective. And once you understand your offense from your victim's perspective, the second step is you have to take full responsibility for your behavior. Now, in any relationship, it takes two to tango, which means that the blame is rarely, if ever, 100% in the camp of one person. But if you own 5% of the mess, how much of the mess do you need to own? 5%. It feels so unjust. They're entire, almost entirely to blame. Why do I have to be the person who asks for forgiveness first? They did something so... Do you see what you're doing? Have to take full responsibility for your behavior and then a couple of things if you're anything like me who's a people pleaser you'll get into the bad habit of apologizing too quickly for things you didn't actually do in an effort to smooth things over with a superficial veneer sound familiar you're in a conflict you see that the train wreck is about to happen you try to head it off by simply taking responsibility for all of it and then apologizing really quickly it doesn't work It doesn't work. Neither should you refuse to apologize because the whole batch of accusations came at you in heat and anger and with the one true accusation came like five or six untrue ones. You can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You have to ask, what part of this mess do I own? And then you take full responsibility for it. Third, having taken full responsibility, you have to name what you did. You have to name what you did. And three nevers to keep in mind when you're here at this step. Never just say, sorry. Right? I'm dealing with this with my boys, and anybody who has children in that space where they can talk, basically, you're telling them the right way to apologize, because here's how my kids apologize to each other. Sorry. <laughs> it doesn't do any good. As a, we know it doesn't do any good. As children, it doesn't do any good. As adults, it's even more foolish. If we just say, sorry, sorry, it's not any good. Remember, we have to understand the depth of the hurt that we've caused. We've got to see the log that's in our own eye from the victim's perspective, all right? If Never use the word if. If you weren't so thin-skinned, there's a whole, okay, watch what that does. It makes the victim of your bad choices the bad person for being so sensitive as to be hurt by your actions, Okay? It's only when the victim hears you name the offense and describe its impact to them that they realize what, that you realize what you've done. And then the apology can have an impact. Third, uh, never promise that it'll never happen again. Chances are you've already broken that promise. They know it. Just don't say it. Let your actions do the talking. Fourth thing is to ask for forgiveness. What's the key verb there? A- ask. That means don't expect. That means don't um, presume. Asking is the key part. You you stole their dignity. You've incurred a debt that, frankly, you cannot repay. You're beseeching their graciousness to restore that relationship. And then here's another incredibly humbling phrase that you can commit to memory and use later on. Honey, I was wrong. Will you please forgive me for, and then you fill in the blank with the name of the thing that you did. You try saying those words. Something in your body physically shrivels up and dies. It's called your pride. Pride. <laughs> This is such a tough sentence to say because it debases you. It takes all of your pride out of the situation. Honey, I was wrong. Will you please forgive me for? But there is something so I think I don't want to, magical is not the right word. Supernaturally grace-filled about this transaction. You've heard it said that time heals all wounds. What a load of garbage, right? All of us have past wounds that are still festering in us. We're dealing with the ghosts of fathers and generations past, things that have left unresolved in our lives. You will go to the grave with that offense. Time doesn't heal anything. Do you know what happens if you have a wound and you don't tend to it? Time simply gives you an infection. It doesn't heal it. In order for things to be healed, they have to be brought to light because sunlight is an antiseptic. It cleans the wound. The act of forgiveness is like cauterizing an open wound. It seals the wound and allows it to heal and prevents further infection. When you ask for forgiveness and it's granted, you are, and there's a whole other sermon here that we don't have time to get into, about you as the victim and the work that you need to do to come to a place of forgiveness towards the person who's offended you. And Jim, by the way, he's got like 6,000 words and 15 pages on this stuff and super helpful, and I will give it to anybody who asks. Just email me. I'll be happy to pass it along. He's given me permission. But when you, as the person who's been victimized, give forgiveness in that moment, you're absolving yourself of any future right or responsibility to bring up that offense again. It is as though if I borrowed 20 bucks, I'm in debt to you, and as long as I owe you the 20 bucks, there will always be this imbalance in the relationship. But if either one of two things happens, I repay you or you forgive the debt, then the balance has been restored. I cannot then later on talk to you about the 20 bucks. You don't owe it to me anymore. I've forgiven the debt. When forgiveness occurs, it seals and cauterizes the wound and allows true healing to take place. And in the experience with my own marriage, whenever my wife and I have gone through this very humbling process, we'll remember that there was a disagreement, but I couldn't tell you about what it was. There's something that it kind of helps it move out of your mind. If you're still looping on a past offense against you, there's a strong chance that means that your soul hasn't come to rest. The scales haven't been balanced yet and you still need to seek forgiveness. Here's the fourth principle, last thing. Grace has the power to affect lasting change. Grace has the power to affect lasting change. Now, if this is true, if it's grace that has the power to affect lasting change, then derision, insults, abuse, retaliation, backbiting, violence, and anger don't don't no one has been fundamentally transformed by the power of a bickering wife no one has been fundamentally transformed by the power of an angry husband no one has woken up each day wanting to do better for their spouse because they live in a caustic and emotionally unstable environment do you know what changes people is god's grace when we want fundamental change, the only thing that I know to be true is for the Holy Spirit to begin the slow, patient, consistent work that he has promised that he will do. Philippians 1, six: if God has started a good work in you, he is faithful to complete it until the day that Jesus Christ comes back. We are all in process and it's our responsibility to partner with the grace of God that has been poured out in our lives. So if it's God's grace that changes us, why don't we be the people who use grace to help change others as well? because of pride, because when you're hurt, the easiest thing to do is to try to hurt back or to drop into a shell where you can't get hurt anymore. And friends, that only perpetuates the same kinds of bad behavior that results in conflict. It's God's grace. It's what he did for us. He was the first mover who came down. The gospel is the good news that Jesus acted first. The gospel is the good news that Jesus secured a way for us to be forgiven. The gospel is the good news that God stands in judgment over us and says not guilty because of what Jesus has done. I tell every couple that I meet with before they get married, never forget the gospel because your reserve of graciousness will run dry. Your spouse will upset and offend and annoy you so much that one day you'll decide that it's not worth it, that you can't do it anymore. And it's true, you can't do it anymore because your reserves are finite. But when we draw upon the grace of Christ and we remember that when we stand before God, how many times have we been the screw up? How many times have we been the offending party? How many times have we done something that was so cruel and hurtful and thoughtless and yet each time Jesus looks at us and says, I forgive you. Friends, we lose the capacity for, to forgive our spouses or people we love when we forget the gospel of what Christ has done for us. He reaches out in infinite graciousness to say, you are accepted and loved and through the grace transform us. And it is only when we are able to access that grace in our own lives personally that we can extend it to someone else. So if you're suffering, if you're struggling inside of your marriage right now, don't give up hope and cling afresh to the grace of Christ. Let him fill you so that you can be poured out in your daily life. And it is through the long patient process of grace given to one another that true change begins to happen. So, what do we learn? Here's four principles to help you resolve conflict more effectively. Number 1, win the person, not the battle. If your fights are characterized by increasing escalation, you're doing it wrong. Second thing, never devalue the other person. Commit ahead of time to using words and actions that do not devalue the other. The third step is to remove guilt through forgiveness. You've got to see your behavior through their eyes. Take the log out of your own. You've got to take full responsibility, name it, and then actually apologize for it so the scales can be balanced again. And then lastly, never forget that grace affects lasting change. Jesus has not given up on you. Don't give up on each other. Happy New Year. Lord Jesus, we love you and help. For the marriages represented in this room, they're hanging on by a thread, help. For the people who are at a wit's end with a loved one, help. For the people who have already crossed that boundary line of of separation or divorce, help. God, grant unto each of us a fresh measure of your grace. Give us wisdom in dealing with our situations. Give us patience and humility. Give us the insight to see the log that lies in our own eye. Help us, God, to commit to never avenging ourselves, but to submitting all things to your gracious and sovereign hand. Lord, as we head into a new year, we ask for your grace afresh. We commit ourselves to you as your people, humbly entrusting everything that we are into your hands. We need you, Jesus, and thanks. Thank you so much for being an amazing, gracious, sovereign, loving God. We love you so much, imperfectly, but we love you. And we need you. We want more of who you are in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Friends, you're deeply loved. I hope that you have a wonderful start to 2018. Uh, as Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through CanbyFoursquare.com.